0: This is the Associated Students Radio Hour. I'm Avital Pellock, and over the next few episodes, I'm very excited to be bringing you interviews with three faculty members who are working together across disciplines and departments and in partnership with the Bozeman community in innovative ways to understand the prevalence and impact of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the disease COVID-19 in Montana. As the crisis began to unfold, Drs. Selena Ahmed Blake Wenheft, Michelle Flanagan, and numerous others at our university sprang into action, each bringing their unique knowledge, background, and skills to the table and adapting to what was needed. Talking to them made me feel great pride in being part of an academic institution, and I think it really highlights the benefits that having a university brings to the city of Bozeman. In this episode, I will be talking with Dr. Selena Ahmed, Dr. Ahmed is an Associate Professor of Sustainable Food Systems in the Department of Health and Human Development here at MSU. She is also the co-leader of the Food and Health Lab and the Translational Biomarkers Corps. She has an impressively interdisciplinary academic background. She has a bachelor's degree in economics with a minor in biology from Barnard College. A master's degree in ethnobiology from the Cultural Anthropology Department at the University of Kent in England in collaboration with the Kew Botanical Gardens. As a part of her master's degree she studied the commercialization of Argana Spinoza in the Argonne Biosphere Reserve in Morocco. She has a PhD in biology from the City University of New York in collaboration with the New York Botanical Garden and she completed a postdoctoral fellowship through an NIH program at the Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences at Tufts University. Her diverse academic background has endowed her with the ability to view specific situations with an interdisciplinary lens and allows her to work with a wide array of collaborators to bring together understandings from a variety of fields. I began our conversation by asking her to describe the nature of the work she is doing now in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Here is Selena.
1: I have never studied really infectious disease um, before as a main part of my research. And um, however, when this pandemic started, or really before it started, um, I began following it very closely. And a lot of this was um, had started because I've been working in 2006. And so when the news from my, my Chinese collaborators, um, you know, came to my attention, December and January, I very much started following the outbreak, seeing the different, you know, isolation and suppression measures, that they were having, and also became very aware of um, the impacts that this was having on food systems, and you know, started about um, why in some countries um, cases were more contained than in other countries. And so, back at the end of February and early March, I uh, very much uh, realized that we, you know, we needed to come together in our university uh, with other collaborators, uh, really to respond. To this um, as best we could. And one thing that uh, became very clear to me early on was sort of the need for more testing. And so I had friends and collaborators um, and family members, you know, who potentially thought they might have COVID-19, they might have been infected by um, the SARV cov 2 virus. However, because of limited testing, um, they didn't really know. And so, you know, reading more and more news stories, it was became very clear that, you know, testing testing was this big limitation. And so, you know, during this process, I've come to learn so much more. But back then, um, I, I, you know, quickly looked up to see, well, what's needed for testing of coronavirus? And we saw that we needed uh, a PCR machine. And it's like, oh, we have many of those here on campus. And, you know, can we do something? And so um, the first thing was um, forming this um, COVID 19 testing task force here on campus, uh, which has many, many professors um, across campus. Um, in this um, uh, task force. And then the second thing that I've been really focused on is thinking about how this pandemic is impacting food security um, at the household level and then more like general statewide food security. And um, that's here in Montana. I've been carrying out interviews along with my collaborators Um, as well as more like oral history, story mapping interviews, and then also uh, with my collaborators in China, uh, trying to understand uh, the effects of the pandemic on food security. And because China is several months ahead of the outbreak than we are here in the United States, it provides a really nice case study to uh, begin to understand what may be happening here is learning from a country and farmers and consumers um, who are a little bit further along in the outbreak than we are over here. And so that part of my research um, really has um, focused on interviews, talking to farmers, uh, speaking with food banks and other organizations, uh, food hubs, um, as well as the general consumer.
0: That's, that's kind of that's incredible that you were able to catch on so early from your research in China and start uh, planning well ahead of time um, for what you were going to do. Um, so let's start with the, the antibody testing because uh, that, that's the kind of testing that you're focusing on, right? is the antibody testing, which is
1: yes. and mm-hmm, absolutely. So I'll definitely say, uh, so we've been planning the antibody testing for the past month and I'll just say that this is still a plan. We haven't started implementing it. and um, you know, we still need to get IRB approval to actually implement this in communities. However, we have been working on the experimental design, getting the resources, getting the community partners, um, you know, working through all the pieces. And um, so we can have this study um, set up. And then hopefully once we have IRB approval, uh, we'll be able to implement it. And so the goal of the study is to determine the prevalence of um, the SARS-CoV-2 invec- infection, that's the virus that causes COVID-19 disease, um, among communities here in Montana, and um, not just the infection, but also uh, the presence of antibodies, which could suggest um, immunity and I personally am very interested in understanding that in rural and tribal communities, and that's because we know um, that those communities already have health disparities and higher rates of chronic disease and other health conditions that we know are risk factors for increased uh, chances for uh, those populations to suffer from more severe consequences and infections and mortality as a result of an infection to sars 2 And so um, that's why I'm particularly interested in those communities. And so we're really interested in trying to get a better sense of the prevalence of the infection and immunity and then how that may differ based on different demographic characteristics, lifestyles and prevention behavior. And so this this is really important because, you know, we're seeing. X number of reported cases and that X number of reported cases keeps on changing, you know, every day. And then we're also, you know, keep on seeing these uh, graphs um, and this messaging of flattening the curve, but we don't really understand what that curve is if we haven't actually um, done testing, um, you know, among the population. And so there's lots of different estimates of this. So when we're saying, you know, we want to flatten the curve, Um, what is that actual curve? And the more testing that we can do, the more we can understand what that curve looks like. So some studies say that there's actually 10 times more cases um, than the reported number of cases. Other studies suggest there may be more than a hundred times the cases than the reported number of cases. And then still other studies are suggesting that there might be 1000 times more cases than the reported number of cases. And so um, we're trying to do this testing to really figure out, get a better sense of the prevalence of the infection uh, within communities so we can have a better understanding. And so uh, antibody testing that we are planning, which really is um a more rapid way of um uh, of understanding uh, potential infection and immunity um, is a good move forward because it uh, reduces our resources. And so for official diagnostic testing, um, it requires, uh, you know, diagnostic testing in a CLIA certified lab, uh, which the FDA has approved using um, specific protocols and uh, testing equipment as well as materials. And a lot of those resources are very much uh, limited um, right now. And so for example, the swabs that are used for diagnostic testing to collect a nasopharyngeal sample are in high demand and very limited. And so that reduces the amount of tests that can act, diagnostic tests that can actually be completed Um, In other situations, there's actually not enough capacity to carry out um, enough of the PCR diagnostic test because there might be a limitation of the reagents. And so a way that we can still understand prevalence uh, with these testing limitations is by doing this antibody or serology testing. And so what we're planning is to um, do this rapid antibody testing, which you know provides basically screening, Um, and results within 15 minutes. And this is not intended to be a diagnostic test, but it's really intended to be a screening of people who do not have severe um, COVID-19 symptoms that don't actually qualify for a diagnostic test. And so what we're planning to do is uh, focus the screening on frontline workers, as well as people that have mild COVID-19 symptoms. And uh, the frontline workers are grocery store workers, food bank workers, um, maybe gas uh, attendants, uh, police officers, public health workers, people that really have a lot of interaction um, and high risk occupation at this time who aren't able to undergo the social isolation measures that we're undergoing. And so um, those are the people that we would like to do the screening to understand the prevalence of infection within that population. And so these people are either asymptomatic, that they don't show any symptoms of having COVID-19, or that this population might have uh, mild symptoms, but they're not actually eligible for diagnostic testing. And by testing this population, we could potentially identify people that actually are positive um, for SARS-CoV-2 virus um, that um, might be super transmitters. For example, you know, they might be working at a grocery store and interacting with lots of people. And so if we're able to provide the screening for those um, people, then we can um, really implement better suppression measures um, because then they can be suggested to quarantine. And then we can do some, or public health authorities can do public um contact tracing, um, you know, of their contacts to also uh, test them. And so that's um, one of the goals really is to, you know, provide some sort of public health support, um, as well as um, really some scientific understanding, both for the short term, um, to help public health authorities make decisions, as well as for the long term. And so, you know, there's a, there's so much uncertainty about this uh, pandemic right now and collecting information and data to understand, you know, how the prevalence may change over time is uh, really, really important. And so one of the other things we're planning with the study is not to only look at the Um, the prevalence of these antibodies at one time point, but to really see um, this at multiple time points to see how this may change. And then, you know, public health authorities can use that information to design different community health interventions, as well as to monitor the effectiveness of their um, interventions. It can also... Provide some information to see how immunity develops over time, um, as well as really providing data for epidemiologists um, who are modeling the outbreak. And then in the long term, or for maybe a future, a future pandemic or for a future uh, SARS-CoV-2 outbreak, um, this can provide some information, um, um, you know, to see how uh, the outbreak might progress and how that may vary based on different demographics. And so lots of decisions, you know, are being made right now with limited data and so really trying to provide data so we can make more evidence based decisions. But again, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, unknowns, even with the data that we're collecting or we plan to collect.
0: Yeah. So with the antibody testing, you said it's not a diagnostic test. Like, does it? It takes time, right, for people if they have had an infection. It -hmm. takes a certain amount of time for them to develop an antibody. So, um, so does it tell whether a person had an infection, or can it actually tell whether someone has? like how would they test how would their results come out if they are currently having an infection mm-hmm.
1: excellent yeah that's a good question and so for the antibody test um, they're looking at two different antibodies immunoglobins uh, which are proteins of the body is making in response to an infection um, this is Igm and immunoglobin M and IGG immunoglobin g and um, Igm basically comes out about uh you know, early on an infection. Um, So this maybe, maybe happens about maybe four to five days, uh, you know, after an infection. And, um, and then later on an infection, um, there's also the emergence of IgG. Um, And, um, and then late at a later stage in infection, there might just be IgG. And so when um, when you're taking these um, antibody tests, um, and there's two types, the one that we are first employing uh, or planning on employing is this sort of rapid point of care test, uh, which, you know, just as a finger prick. And so it will either tell us um, if the uh, participant has is positive for IgM, which could indicate that they're early on in the infection and may still have an infection. Um, it can also suggest if um, they have both IgG and IgM, or if they have IgG and they might be later on in the infection, or if they, you know they're uh, they're no longer have the infection. And so um, our plan for this antibody testing is for all participants that test positive for um, the antibodies, whether it's IgM, IgG, or IgG and IgM, that they will then be um, sampled for diagnostic confirmatory testing. And so we basically are using the antibodies as a screening to identify people who would then undergo diagnostic confirmatory testing. And so, yeah. So for me, like I have been working um, with communities um, on public health, and um, you know, through the translational biomarkers um, core that I lead here on campus, our goal is to work with communities um, to measure biomarkers in response to some sort of environmental exposure. And so, this very much fits in with the goal of um, our translational biomarkers core. Um, however, yeah, I'm not an immuno immunologist or um, an epidemiologist, and so um, really very much, you know, collaborating with many, many, many people on this study um, is, is critical.
0: Next, I talked to Selena about the work she is doing looking at the impact of the pandemic on food systems in China, as well as here in Montana. She had recently been part of an international panel where she discussed this work. The virtual panel had a capacity of 500 people, which, to her surprise, was maxed out before the meeting even began. Here's what she had to say about that.
1: It makes it very clear that it's an issue that's impacting communities all over around the world. Um, you know, and everybody is interested, um, you know, in supporting this. And, uh, you know, a lot of the food issues that we discuss a lot of times on these panels are you know, outside of the impact of um, some of the people that are on the panel. So a lot of times I'm, you know, speak speaking about food security issues that that are not actually directly impacting me. Um, but I think this is the first time I've been on a panel where every single person is, you know, is impacted by this. Um, and so for in terms of uh, the food, you know, for in terms of food systems. And so what I've been doing in China is just trying to understand how is this impacting uh, communities? And what I'm who I was really focused on understanding um, was how is it impacting smallholder farming communities? Because those are the communities that I have um, worked the longest in. And so back in January and in February, I began to get photographs from my collaborators. In China, as well as my community partners, and um, images tell you know tell huge stories. And the images I was getting from my collaborators that lived in urban areas initially were supermarket shelves, you know, that were empty of um, of food, and so um, that hit really hard, you know, back back in January, early February. And then what was really um, in, in stark contrast. What uh, was really interesting was that uh, my community partners that are managing uh, their own food systems, their own local food systems, so, you know, mostly subsistence farmers that commercialize some of their food and resources, but very much rely on their surroundings for their food, um, they didn't seem to be impacted. So they were, you know, sending pictures of their uh, dinner table, um, which looked very much like it always did. And I and I found that really interesting how you know within the same country, different parts of the country, um at the same time that, that there was these really um sharp differences even within the same province. And so most of my research in China has been in Yunnan province. And you know, even within Yunnan province, uh, which was not at, you know at the epicenter of the pandemic in China, um, even in urban areas there you know, there was uh, a lot of food shortages at the supermarket level, but not in these rural communities. And so that's really when I started to um, do these interviews to understand how people's access uh, to food and their diets was being impacted, um, and then initiated this collaborative study with my partners at Min's University of China um, and the Kunming Institute of Zoology. And so what also became apparent was what we're seeing at the supermarket is basically the food environment, right? That's the consumer interface with the food system, but it does not represent the entire food system. And so just because there's a shortage of food at the food, you know, in the food environment in a supermarket, um, it doesn't mean that the entire food system is broken. And so I really wanted to understand the, you know, the larger food system as well. Um, and so this is why, you know, interviews specifically with farmers and uh, what was happening at the farm level was really important was to get about a better understanding of the food system. Um, and so um, uh, the specific questions we've been asking farmers is have they seen changes in specific aspects of their food system? And so, First is just you know in terms of the agro ecosystem or the farm level, have there been changes to their farm management practices or their schedule of farming? Um, and then have there been you know changes in the way they're accessing any specific inputs they may be using? And so based on preliminary. Data that we've collected, and this is from approximately 55 farming households um, across different agroclimatic zones in China. We've seen that about 60% of the households reported that they have indeed um, shifted their farming practices in response um, to this pandemic. And um, a lot of this is because of shifts in schedules um, of, you know, when they're actually. Um, planting, or when um, they're seeding, or uh, when, when specific activities are happening, um, and this really is because a lot of farmers um, re- rely on, let's say, outside labor to help with their farming activities. And uh, because of the social isolation and quarantine um, measures to mitigate the virus, um, you know, a lot of that migrant worker uh, force um, is no longer accessible and So a lot of farmers, a lot of farms are having to shift their management practices um, because of this. And, you know, it seems to be more than half uh, from the households that we've spoken to. And so that's something that we're seeing also here in the United States is, um, you know, the migrant worker population is being impacted because of um, the different travel restrictions and Um, you know, social isolation measures. And so a lot of farms are very much dependent on migrant workers. And um, that's really being impacted. And then the second, um, the second question regarding the farm is um, shifts in farming inputs. And so the majority of the farms that basically are I would classify as being more sustainable or following more of an ecological agricultural production method, those farms have are ha- have sort of been more resilient uh, because they're not relying on outside sourcing or sources uh, for their farm management. And so um, those farms really haven't seen any shifts in access to farm inputs because they don't really use very uh, many farm inputs, but farms that uh, do rely on outside input, for example, fertilizer and seeds, um, those farms really have had, um, you know, have been more impacted and are less resilient um, to what's happening. And so, you know, that really, th- those findings or preliminary findings, I should say, really emphasize the importance of um, local food systems in really being as resilient um, in using as many inputs um, from within the ecosystem and managing the the farm in an agroecological manner, relying as much on the farm as possible. And then shifting sort of from what's happening on the farm um, to thinking about the diets and food availability of these households. The majority of households are seeing shifts in what's available as well as what's affordable, and so prices very much have gone up, Um, and also the diversity of what's available um, has very much shifted. And, um, so that's something that's something, um, that these households are seeing, but what's really interesting, um, is when, you know, when we're asking about have their diets changed. And so even though about 75% of the households have said that food has food prices have gone up, only 20% of the households have actually seen a change, um, in their diet. And so um, I think that's really interesting. And this is sort of like short-term effects. And, um, you know, this may change um, if this pandemic and this outbreak are you know, uh, play out for a lot longer. But right now in the short term, uh, household diets aren't really shifting as much um, in these communities, which I which I think that's really interesting. And so right now we, you know, aren't really seeing a breakdown in, in the entire food system, even though there are changes. However, because we are seeing changes in farm practices, um, including shifts in like their ability to access Inputs to the farm in the long term. Um, if this continues, you know that could very much impact diets and eventually nutrition, and then eventually health. Um, and then you know uh, food systems can really suffer. Um, but in the short term, that's uh, you know diets aren't being impacted at the moment for the majority of these households. Um, at the same time, about ninety-five percent of the households said that they they've seen a decrease in um, their income based on what's happening and most of that is because even though they're able to produce food they're not able to sell it uh, because of just that lack of access um, to markets has very much shifted and so that's something you know that's um we're also seeing here in the united states is um sort of that huge shift in you know in income that um a lot of uh farmers are seeing and I'm not sure if you've been following a lot of the news stories that have been coming out, but really, you know, farms are continuing to produce, you know, milk and they're con- continuing to produce vegetables, but they're unable to deliver that food um, to market um, because there's been such a shift in sort of the overall food environment. And so here in the United States, as you know, you know, restaurants and uh, institutions such as schools have shut down and those institutions really are like the big buyers and vendors for a lot of these products. And with those institutions shut down, a lot of our farms are having um, great difficulty finding um, markets and vendors um, and buyers for their product. And so, you know, there is milk milk producers all around the country right now that traditionally sell their product to you know milk processors and then milk processors then sell that product um, you know to restaurants or to schools and uh, with those restaurants and schools being shut um, you know the basically the processors are unable to buy the same amount of milk and so a lot of um, a lot of farms are suffering right now and having to are basically having to um, you know grow Vegetables produce milk, um, but basically um, are having to throw it right now. And so this really is highlighting the need going forward in rethinking about so many things in the food system, but really in the future, helping build capacity of um, farmers to process their own products, as well as thinking about, you know, diversified markets. And so I think in terms of like sustainable food systems, what's happening right now is really difficult, but it's also really an opportunity for us to recognize some of the vulnerabilities in the food system and some of the opportunities moving forward. So we can really, Reshape and rethink our food systems to be more sustainable in the future and more resilient. And so, while it's very difficult right now, um, especially for the people that are that are really uh, the most vulnerable right now, in the future, um, I I am hopeful for having more resilient and sustainable food systems because of the lessons that we're learning right now.
0: Great, and and yeah, like and like you said, it's not really. Um... A change in the general consumption, like the overall consumption, it's just that now people are eating at home instead of eating at schools and at restaurants and everything like that. So there's like this mismatch between the supply and the demand side. Um, So what is being done right now to kind to match that supply to where people need it? Because you know, uh, grocery stores are seeing a you know a lot more. A lot more business and in food banks need food, but at the same time, this food is being having to be destroyed from the from the producers. Um, is there are there any changes that are being made now to to match those supply and demand?
1: Yeah, I think there's you know um, small innovations and increasing innovations that are emerging to um, you know try to solve this problem. And so you know, for example. If um, one thing that I know here in Montana, there's lots of initiatives. But one of the initiatives, for example, is you know, uh, for example, flour or lentils that are you know historically go to restaurants or to schools, and they have them in really large bags. Um, just even something as simple as like rebagging them um, to smaller household size um, that could then be donated to food banks is like one of the things that's happening um, to you know get that product to consumers and so. And that's the same thing that's happening with other products, for example, like giant reels of cheese, um, just thinking about process, packaging them into like smaller amounts so then they can go to households. And so that's something that is something that is just sort of like a repackaging innovation. Um, but it's something that is that is picking up and um, coming in, um, you know, to sort of meet that need for like redistribution. Um, So instead of like creating a whole new product, just sort of like thinking about repackaging it. um, And then, you know, there's new distribution chains, new players, basically food system players that traditionally had one role now coming in to sort of serve a different role, um, you know, uh, putting together different stakeholders in the food system. And so, and that kind of, historically there's always sort of been a mismatch in terms of like um you know supply and demand a lot of people will say you know that while some households many households um you know suffer from food insecurity there you know is enough food that is produced in the world and a lot of it has to do with the distribution problem and i think this is really highlighting that distribution problem um but on the more positive side, I think it's also highlighting these systems that going
0: forward um, can play a role. Great. And I know we're getting close to five o'clock, and I don't want to keep you too late. So um, I do want to ask you about the work you're doing on the Flathead Reservation. Um, And what are you learning from the interviews you're conducting there? And what kind of, you've touched on it a little bit with the testing, but what kind of unique challenges does the situation pose to Montana's American Indian communities?
1: So um, I've been collaboratively working on the Flathead Reservation since uh, 2014. And that project um, has really focused on looking at food security and food environments um, of the community. And during that research, we have um, collected data that suggests that um, the rates of food insecurity Uh, on the reservation are notably and significantly higher than the general population in Montana, as well as in the United States. And we are also noting that the rates of chronic disease are also higher um, in this population compared to um, the average population in Montana and um, the United States. And so because of those higher rates of food insecurity and um, you know, chronic disease, that population is more vulnerable, um, you know, to, uh, an immune response or viral infection. And so, um, I'm particularly, particularly concerned, I guess, about such a vulnerable population at this time. Um, and both in terms of, um, food security status, um, because their food security status already is, so much uh, higher food insecurity status is so much higher than um, the average population, but also um, their risk to having severe infection um, from uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection is higher as well. And so um, that's sort of, you know, focusing on that population, I feel like is really important at this time to think how we can, what are some actual, interventions that we can have to support community health um, right now immediately. And so testing is um, one of the initiatives I think that can really help. And then also thinking about what are some of the food system solutions. And so in terms of identifying the food system solutions, uh, we're working with our partners at Salish and Kootenai College and um, some of the students at the college to interview food system stakeholders within the community to begin to identify their perspectives of what some of the solutions can be to help with the uh, pandemic right now. And so that's sort of the first step that we're taking is uh, to work with you know food system experts within the community right now to begin to identify those solutions. And then the next step will be to uh, kind of compile all of those suggested strategies and then to have a focus group with um, those food system stakeholders to begin to think what the next steps are of what we can do. And so, you know, the first step really is to learn from um, the community members of what they think the solutions are uh, of what we can be implementing and then to move forward. And so we're sort of at those baseline interviews right now to begin to think about what are some of the strategies um, that the community uh, members and specifically experts in food are thinking um, that we should be implementing or that their community should be implementing.
0: Before we ended our conversation, I asked Selena if she had any closing remarks and what she said really resonated with me.
1: Um, well, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And I think, um, you know, both of both thinking about uh, the actual impact this is hap- happening on our health um, in terms of being infected, but also happening on other systems, such as our food system, which then impacts our health is, is really critical right now. And I think while what's happening right now, you know, there's, it, it's uh, scary, and there's so many uncertainties, I am really thinking that research right now is really important in helping us, you know, navigate those uncertainties with more information. And I'm also hopeful that this pandemic is going to allow us to, or really provide and prompt us to rethink um, a lot of our systems and our preparedness in response to crises and global change, um, including other risks that we, you know, face such as climate change, um, and ultimately making us more resilient as a society. And so uh, while what's happening right now is devastating, I also think it's an opportunity for us to um, move forward in a more resilient way, um, in ways that are more pro- promising for uh, both human and planetary health.
0: Dr. Selena Ahmed is an associate professor in the Department of Health and Human Development, specializing in sustainable food systems. She is the co-leader of the Food and Health Lab and the Translational Biomarkers Corps at Montana State University. Later this week, I will be releasing interviews with Drs. Blake Wedenheft and Michelle Flanagan. So make sure you are subscribed to the podcast and look out for new episodes in the feed. That's all for now. I'm Avital Pellock, and this has been the Associated Students Radio Hour.